Okay, fine. Um, let's. Um, I just wanted to make a few more remarks. Um, I think we we were speaking, um, we were discussing the Timaeus, and we were discussing the fact that um, Plato understands the um, world to be a, a actually a living creature with a soul and intelligence. Um, I just wanted to mention actually a few things about that. I think it's, it's, it's a side point, but I think it's a very interesting side point. Um, first of all, um, the Rambam devotes an entire chapter to this. I mean, we spoke about the Rambam's, um, um, the Rambam understanding of you know, Plato's theory of forms, also appears in the Rambam, right? It's we spoke about that. But actually, that the actual world is a living being um, which is actually, um, um, according, um, according to Timaeus, on page 16, um, guided by this reasoning, he put intelligence and soul and soul and body, and so he constructed the universe. He wanted to produce a piece of work that would be as excellent as the prima's nature would allow. This, then, in keeping with our likely account, is how we must say divine providence brought our world to being as a truly living thing endowed with soul and intelligence. And then he goes on to say that... Uh, that the world resembles more closely than anything else that living thing of which all other living things are parts, both individually and by kinds. Um, the living things is, uh, that appears here in this translation is a capital L, a capital T. I'm not exactly sure. Um, he uses a um, a definite article. I'm not exactly sure that living thing. I'm not sure what that living thing refers to. Does it refer to a man? Does it refer to somebody else? However, um, what's interesting to note is that the Rambam develops, uh, de the Rambam devotes an entire chapter of the first chilek of the Meirah Nevochem, Perak Ayin Beis, to this, um, to this concept, that, um, to this concept of, um, that in fact actually the world is actually um, parallel to a human being. The Rambam um, speaks about this, and uh, the Rambam calls a uh, man an oilam katan. Um, and um, for example, um, it appears in um, the Schwartz edition from page 194 until page 203. I'll just quote from a important paragraph on page 200 in the Schwartz edition on the, um, the third paragraph. Da sha'omri bala adam shu oilam katan. You know that it says it's set upon uh, upon man that he's a you know a small world. To a human being, right? And this speaks about because so, so, so ah so 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 it's interesting that the um, the Rambam says is that it, in other words because we compare it to an animal too, right? But the Rambam says we never heard of anyone saying that a um, a donkey or um, a or a horse or a horse is an oil of cotton. But this is said upon a person because that which is unique to man. This is his power of speech. Which I guess which says really man's intellect. That's the the logos. Right? And etc. Uh, etc. Et so in fact, actually, the Rambam um, actually in fact um, records Plato's view and subscribes to the fact that the world is actually uh, man is a small world, and the world is actually this this creature, which is actually um, you know corresponds in in in, in an, uh, an analogy to man, and also um, the fact that it has a, has a, has a cycle, has intelligence. The Rambam is um, clearly getting this out of uh, Plato's uh, Timaeus. Now, um, this issue was very, very much picked up by the Mikubalim. The Nefesh Chaim, did I mention Nefesh Chaim last time? Spoke about the fact that, uh, that in fact, actually in, in Shabbat's Parakei, that he wanted to claim that the Rambam actually is um, alluding to Kabbalistic things, and um, and um, the Nefesh Chaim has an entire, you know, right. Basically, the Nefesh Chaim understands that Kol is the Shama of the world, 
in much the way that a person has neshama too. Um, but and the v'chayim, right? In other words, um, so in other words, this is a very what uh, the the it's not really related so much to creation ex nihilo um, that we're speaking about, but the very very fact is is that. Um, the Rambam is ascribing is, is ascribing to this platonic now platonic view of the world as being actually a living creature, which by the way is not only Plato's view, it's also Aristotle's view too. Aristotle also understood that the world was actually a living creature. The distinction between the Rambam and what I think to be is Plato is that Plato calls it the living thing. But he doesn't. He doesn't in any way. Um, he doesn't refer directly to man. Aristotle, I believe, actually, in fact, understood that um, that the world is actually similar to some type of a of an animal. In other words, much more biological. Um, the um, the Rambam understands that some. I mean, the Rambam doesn't. The Rambam understands that the the analogy to man is to that of man, which is significant. Why the Rambam actually. Um, Related to the man, um, I would I would I would venture to say, um, without going into the, in, in, into this in, in, in detail, that the distinction between the Rambam and Plato and Aristotle is that, you know, as far as the Rambam is concerned, man is much more of a central part of the entire world. In other words, <coughs> we don't see in Plato, or in, certainly not in Aristotle. The man occupies, you know, any enough of a unique position. I mean, man does have intelligence, but also the world has intelligence too. Because we don't see in the um, we don't see in the Greek philosophers that man occupies this privileged position in the world. I mean, man is part of nature and part of a world which has intelligence in general. In Judaism, right, and the Barnabuchim is a Jewish book. Um, certainly, man is in fact actually um, created by Tzalim the image of God, that's the first chapter of the Mordevuchem, man occupies a very, very privileged, unique, important um, part of the world. So even though man might be you know, part of the physical world, his position is clearly unique, clearly important. In fact, he's created by Salaman Okim. I mean, he's endowed with intellect, as we've seen, in the, and the Ramah speaks about this in chapter 68, 69 of the first Chalik. Um, he's endowed with intellect, which is actually... The sort says almost completely analogous, at least an act to, to that of God, that of a Kodesh So, in other words, what the Rambam is doing here is that he's borrowing upon the cosmology, Greek cosmology, but in fact, actually, he's um, he's giving it a Jewish twist, namely that the essence of the world, as reflected in the analogy to man, right, is in particular to man. And it's not a living creature. And I think this is a very, 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 very important um, point to make. That uh, the Rambam is making a very important variation on a, on a theme, a Greek theme, which um, which discusses at length in uh, chapter seventy-two. Uh, yeah. Schwartz in footnote two on page one nine four. What? Page one nine four. Yeah. In footnote two. Yeah. He says he also he brings down Timaeus and Aristotle. But yeah. He also says. He also says this idea is an avastor of Inosan and Sefer Yitzira. This is what? This idea of Alam Katan is also an avastor of Inosan and Sefer Yitzira. Uh-huh. I don't right. know whether they make some Jewish ideas or whether... I'm not, I'm not sure historically which comes first. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, um, I think that, I think actually that, 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 that's good. I think maybe we should look at it, um, we'll have to get a chance to look at it, but not, we'll have to look at not the, the Goins, Perush and Sefer Yitzira, but more maybe um, the Raivit or Avsadjit or one of the promotion of the Rishayim on Sefer Yitzir, to see, or the right, the, to see exactly how they how they understand this. Um, but I mean, uh, the fact is that the Nefshachayim, um, you know, the Nefshachayim, this this notion of Adam as big and oil cotton is uh, is fundamental to the Nefshachayim. There's no question about it. Uh, the whole concept of Tzedem Elokim in the Nefshachayim is in fact actually a um, an expression of that the world is. Is one anthropomorphic um, face of uh, which corresponds to man. So that's uh, fundamental in the Kabbalah. Um, it's interesting, is that the, 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 that um, you know, it's very interesting that Reb Chaim Velozhina. I mean, you look the entire Rambam's Mar Nevuchin. There's no. Um, I mean, 
I mean, people might call this an mystical, but it's, not, it's, it's interesting that Chaim Velazhana picked this up as being really where the Rambam is hinting at the uh, secrets of the Kabbalah. And the Lashon of Chaim Velazhana is the Roy Lemisha Oimron. And the Rambam is being Meramis to Kabbalah. Um, did we mention, I think, uh, Rab Tzadik, that actually Greek philosophy is the Chitzonius of, uh, of the Padimia Satera? Um, for that? What? Remember the that? I forget. We have to. We have to. We have to find the for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, there is actually. Um, there is actually um, um, something which I think is worth mentioning too. I mean, if we're speaking already about this thing, um, for Aristotle. Okay, for Plato maybe not, but for Aristotle, the world was all that there was. Okay, for Plato we have these. Well, theoretical, you know, um, forms of which the world is a imperfect um, expression, but the Aristotle understood there's nothing but the world. We're going to see this a little while too in the when we go to Aristotle's physics. In other words, the Greeks understood that the entirety of the universe. I think Plato and Aristotle understood, which was normal to Greek science, that the entirety of the universe, that all there is is the universe. In other words, they didn't recognize. So Aristotle didn't recognize things like a vacuum, which is a concept of space. And time, too, we'll see in Aristotle, is actually, in fact, um, really motion. Time is, is identical with motion. <clears throat> it was the Greeks understood that the entire universe is all that there is. The universe is not contained in something else. This, was, um, this is um, Aristotle for certain, and even Plato too, to a certain extent. I mean, you have the forms, but you can just include the forms as being part of the other universe. And this was actually a debate between these Greek philosophers and the Stoics. The Stoics, um, actually, we spoke about this. The Ramam um, speaks about the Kalam, who um, postulated that, in fact, actually, there was, um, there was something like vacuum, and, you know, and also he spoke about the, the um, discreteness of time, in other words, there was holes in the universe, and um, that was basically Newtonian. Um, that was actually Newtonian physics. Well, Newtonian physics, its, it's conceptual breakaway from, from from Greek physics, was in fact that introduced the fact that the universe is merely something that's contained within space, contained within time. So, in other words, the Greeks actually did away with this notion of oilum cotton. In other words, and because of that, um, in the 17th century. Um, because of that, there's, there's the actually, you have, you have in the 17th century, interestingly enough, in the 17th century, you have the onset of what's called imminence. The, um, the philosophers in the 17th century, um, Malebranche, um, um, Descartes, starts, ha, speaks, not Hobbes, Hobbes was, was an atheist, starts speaking about the body of God, Spinoza, in other words, God already begins to have a body. And part of the body of God is the fact is that you have these abstract notions like space and time which don't actually refer to um, which don't actually refer to um, to um, the, the, you know what they're, they're abstract in other words, the world is contained within space or contained within time and since these concepts are abstract they're in other words they're not things that are contained in the world they're purely abstract so you have a, there is was actually a notion of, of of imminence, namely that there are we have here things which are really of a totally spiritual nature. They're certainly not of a physical nature. You know, space is an abstraction, time is an abstraction, and because of this, this lent itself to a um, in, other words, in the 17th and 18th century in the Renaissance, then philosophers start speaking about the the body, the body of God, and I think I've mentioned in the in the going shulam, but I think it's worthy of mentioning here, that the, uh, the, the first notion of imminence will leave the Nefeshachayim's interpretation of the Rambam on the side, but the first real imminence that we see in, um, in Jewish philosophy is, is in the Arizal. And the Arizal, in this Hagdama, um, speaks about the, uh, in, in, the irreducible dichotomy between the Kodesh Baruch and of himself, the Kodesh Baruch race of the world, then, in fact, actually, there, there is there, a, in fact, actually, a, a theology of imminence, which was picked up by the Balatanya, almost literally, and that constituted the great debate between the, um, between the, um, between the Goin and the Balatanya. The Balatanya, now, what's interesting is, is that the, the, um, 
So the, what's interesting is is that um, this notion, though, of the world being a living creature is a theory of imminence in a certain sense. The way the way the, the way the Nefshachayim learns in the Rambam, the Kodesh Bo'ochu is in fact actually like the neshama of the physical world. Now, that's a very shocking statement because given what we know from the Nefesh HaChayim in Sha'al Gimel, that Mamala Kol Almam is something that's, in other words, removed from man's possible conception that man writes to God transcendentally. That's his definition of Kav and Tzimtzum in in Chela Gimel, to say that Kodesh Baruch Hu's, his essence is the neshama of the physical world, that sounds, I almost use the word mamish, but sounds mamish like the Balatanya. If there's one or two places in Nefesh Chaim where the Nefesh Chaim actually lets up and sounds like the Balatanya. I don't, I mean, in my Nefesh Chaim I put this all over and I leave it Pitzach Ian Gadol, but the fact is that Reb Chaim Balazhan has forgotten himself in a certain sense. I mean, and he speaks about the spiritual and the physical world too. His Lashon in um, Parakeh is El Yoinim V'Tachtoinim. So in other words, God's Neshama permeates the physical world too. That's what Desla says. There's no machlokas between them. But that can't be. You see in the in, in Shah Gimel, that's, that's absurd. In Shah Gimel, he's coming to totally contend with the Nefesh HaChayim. In other words, the this is, yeah, the, with the Balatanya. This is not Sugi Beduchte. In other words, in, in, in Shah Gimel, he is coming clearly to argue with the Balatanya and saying you learned the symptoms wrong and I'm going to revert them. That in fact, contraction, right, is, in other words, it's not a process of contraction and then emanation. Symptoms and Kav, rather two aspects and that the, what's called the Malakol Alman something which is removed from man's possible conceptual field. I mean, that's Sugi Badukhta. He's clearly arguing on the Balatanya. There's no question about it. And, it's, and also, too, I, you know, I don't want to sound that from here, but it's inconceivable that he wouldn't argue about Latanya, given the fact that his rabbi, the guy, called the Balatanya a paganist, a min, for saying things like this. It is true that he suggests a different solution, but it's inconceivable that he's not arguing about Latanya on this, right? Um, but the fact is, is that here in, 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 in Shabbat's Parakeh, he makes this statement, and I don't, you know, I really clearly don't understand, you know, where this fits in, and to his, you know, his overall hashkafra. I'm just leaving it to Tzorachim. You know, this is the Tzorachim, I can't answer. The fact is, though, is that this, the, the Rambam certainly, Nechachim's interpretation aside, the Rambam certainly did not understand this thing to be a question of imminence. He understood this just to be analogy between man and the world. That's how I understand the Rambam. And even if he speaks about the fact that man is seichel, that just means that we can ascribe a certain seichel to the working of the world. But the Rambam didn't mean that the essence of Kodesh Baruch itself, right, is within the world. But, in other words, but, you know, but, but, but in any case, right, in other words, and, and the fact is that the, 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 the imminence really comes about really with Yari. There's actually a claim that the notion of imminence appears in the Rambam. I think one of the professors wants to say like that. But in any case, real imminence comes with the Ari. Um, the fact is, is that the, bala, the Balatanyas, but this fits way with the Balatanya. The Balatanya, in other words, uh, the Balatanya's um, understanding of, the, of God's imminence in the world is very, very much similar to this. And what's interesting is, you see, in terms of Newton, in other words, it's not that God's soul permeates the world. Just the certain parameters, like, like you know, geometry and space and time, represent somehow spiritual parameters. But the world itself is is uh, opaque, and but in fact, this theory that the world has a soul, right? This is an extreme notion of imminence, and this actually, um, you know, this was actually, a, I guess, I, I think that I'm sure this is what Sadiq meant. Rapsodic is one of the great imminents in history, if you look at his, um, his writings. I mean, everything's a Kaddish Baruchu. So Rapsodic says that the, um, that the Greek philosophy is the Chitsonius of Kabbalah. I think he means precisely this. Greek philosophy basically creates a completely immanental aspect 
um, an imminental um, picture of the world, which in fact actually is, uh, is right up with Tzaddik in the Balatanya's alley. Okay, in any case, I just wanted, I don't want to, this is not a, a Shirat Kabbalah, but I just wanted to uh, go through this. It's, it's, wor- it's, it's well worth noting this thing. Um, there Agav, um, maybe, let's speak about Einstein and Grand and Space Time. Um, maybe I'll just, since I'm speaking about science on a tangent, maybe just continue on a tangent. Um, what was the revolution of Einstein? The revolution of Einstein was that time is no longer, and geometry too in space, the revolution of Einstein was basically to put time and space back into the physical world. In other words, what Einstein did is he made space and time physical things. There was a Newton, they were abstract things not connected with the world. What Einstein did was, um, in fact, actually to, um, to put space and time back in the world. I think we spoke, we spoke about this in the first class. If not, in any case, um, Einstein's contribution was that time and space constitute the world in front of us. There's no abstract time independent of the world. There's no space independent of the world. Now, um, so really the revolution of Einstein in the beginning of the 20th century with general relativity was to restore, <laughs> to restore this Aristotelian platonic vision or scientific understanding of the world. Now, of course, this always has one of two consequences. I mean, like anything is. I mean, if you don't believe that God's soul permeates the world, which I don't think Einstein believed, so either that could lead you to saying that the structure of the world is God itself, and that was Einstein's statement that his God is the God of Spinoza, because you have nothing but the world, all there is is the world, or you have to be much more optimistic like people like Nav Cook were, and Nav Cook always claimed that new scientific discoveries just push forward our concept of monotheism which means now that time and space have been allocated or relegated to physical quantities and not spiritual abstract notions, then already our concept, our monotheistic concept of God um, has to actually become much higher and higher. That's what Cook claimed, and that's the, those are really the, the two options that the modern man has. Okay, fine. Anyway, like I said before, I've said this a few times, I'm going to go off on tangents. It's interesting things to think about, but I want to go for it now. I think basically we've concluded more or less with the, um, the sources of the Rambam in dealing with the Platonic theory. Now what about Aristotle? Now in fact actually is, is that um, Aristotle argues with Plato, right? And um, his argument with Plato is, um, and it argues with Plato, and of course Aristotle believed, in fact actually, um, is that um, the Rambam claims, I want to go to page 299, that, um, right, that um, Plato believes that the Shemaim was created, right, and you'll find, right, it was created, and what I want to do is I want to read from Aristotle's Physics, and here in Aristotle's Physics, he actually, um, he actually, in fact, um, attributes to Plato even more than the Rambam attributes to Plato. Now, um, I have here the, uh, this is, I understand, a very good um, translation of um, Aristotle's physics. It has the Haskama of, um, what's his name in the library? I forget his name. But uh, there's someone there, a film guy with Peyus, who's uh, a little in Greek, and he, he's masculine. This guy is a very good translation. Um, um, this translation of, um, of, of, of Aristotle, and what I did was I, I, um, I Xeroxed from Book 8 of the Physics. In Book eight, 8 of the Physics, um, Aristotle actually speaks about the eternality of motion. Now, um, I have not really found any, at least, um, I haven't found any place where Aristotle actually speaks about, you know, creation itself, per se. And, you know, he doesn't devote that much to creation, per se, and an argument with Plato. But here and there, there's different places where he does refer to Plato. Now, um, in Book 8, which is this volume, of, this is the collective works of Aristotle, it begins on page 418, and um, the, um, Aristotle is trying to prove that motion has to be eternal. In other words, the motion cannot have been started at any point in time. Now, if you turn the page to um, page 420, there, um, beginning in line um, 11, 
So it's line 11 on page 420, and I understand that the, 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 there's some other page numbers on the side, so it gets 251B. Interesting, Amudim. 251B, maybe it refers to the initial um, physics of Aristotle. And it's in parentheses, and Aristotle's making a motion, right? Making, making, Aristotle's making an argument that motion um, has to be eternal. Right? And um, let's actually we'll begin actually line five. So he says, so if the motion was not always in process, it's clear that there could not have been the conditions such so to render them capable of respect of being moved and causing motion. It was motion, anything which moves has to always has to always have been in motion. Now he says in the parentheses on line eleven, furthermore, he says, how could there be any before and after after existence of time? It's interesting. He's going to make now an argument, an interesting argument. It's, it's obviously it's, uh, it's not the main argument he makes, but it's a very interesting argument, because here he mentions Plato. He says, how could it be, in other words, Aristotle identified mo- uh, time with motion. What? So he says something like this. How, if, if, you want to, if you want to say there was something before, before things were in motion, right? Right? So you have to say there was a there was a no there was a period of history where there was time and no motion, but that can't be because time is dependent upon motion, as he says. How can there be anything before and after the existence of time, without the existence of time? In other words, you can't have something without the existence of time, or how can there be any time without the existence of motion? If the, in other words, you can't have something existing without time, but you can have time without motion. If then time is the number of motion or itself a kind of motion, it follows that if there was always time, the most motion must be eternal. In other words, if I can prove to you, says Aristotle, that there always was time, then there always had to be motion, because time only comes from motion. But so far as time is concerned, we see that all that all with one exception are in agreement, that it is uncreated. Everybody agrees you can't create time. In fact, it's just this that enables Democritus to show that all things cannot have had a beginning. Democritus held that things could not have a beginning. What's his Gaia? Because you can't create time. And because of this, things could not have had a beginning. Because, they had a, because if, if they had a beginning, then there was a time, then you're saying that time is created. For time, he says, is uncreated. Now, time, by definition, is uncreated. Plato alone. Now, here he brings Plato. Here he brings Plato. Okay? Now, Aristotle wrote, I mean, read Plato in the Greek. So, you know, we have to, he's a balsamcha here. If he brings Plato, it means he read him or he had a messiah of what Plato was saying. Plato alert asserts the creation of time. Interesting. Plato asserts the creation of time, saying that it is simultaneous with the world, that the world came into being. Very interesting. What's Aristotle saying? Aristotle is making Plato to for me yet. That Plato held, I mean, Aristotle seems to be saying, that uh, Plato is saying the world came into being, is that creation ex nihilo? That seems to certainly be a direct contradiction to what um, Plato said in the Timaeus um, on page 15, that a God brought the world from a standard disorder to one of order. And that's certainly um, against what the Rambam is saying with Plato. But he says like this, me. Now, since time cannot exist, is unthinkable apart from the now. In other words, the only time, and the now is a kind of middle point. United as it does in itself both a beginning and an end, a beginning of future time and an end of past time. It follows that there must always be time. For the extremity of the last period of time that we take must be found in some now, since in time we can't take nothing but nows. Therefore, since the now is both a beginning and an end, there must always be time on both sides of it. But if this is true of time, it is evident that there must also be true of motion, time being a kind of perfection of motion. Now, first of all, I would like to, um, to, to just be mocked in this a very interesting thing. Um, the, um, in the Megal Levuchem, the Rambam speaks about Bereshus Baal Lokim, the Kodesh Baal who created the world ex nihilo, then what does that mean? That so what's Bereshus Baalokim? So it's Mashmah the Rambam. The Rambam has learned that Kosh Baruch created the world with Reishus. 
What the Reishas? This is Bashmer in the Parak Lamed. Now, in the, um, in the um, traditional Mephoshim, there's a Machloikas, what, what is this Reishas with which the Rabbim created the world? And the Shem Tov understands that Reishas basically means the Machshav HaKadosh Baruch That's really the way the Ramban learns of Peter Zoya, that with Reishas, but Reishas means with Chachma HaKadosh Baruch created the world. However, Kreskas, who's, um, by the way, Del Agav is a, a very great anti-Aristotelian, claims that Kosh created the world with called Atta. In other words, the Metzias, the existence of time, is only the present, right? Obviously, because the past doesn't exist, the future has not come about. So the, the reality of time is the present. Now, says Aristotle that you cannot say that a Kodesh Baruch who created the world at some, at some time. Why not? Because if he created the world at some time, that means at, that at the time that he created the world, that was at that time a present time. Christus calls that Atta. He, he created the world at a certain time. Well, every present has a past and a future. In other words, what's the present if not the dividing point between the past and the future. So, you can't say that God created the world at any specific time. Because if you created the world at a specific time, then you would have to create, in other words, there would have to be a present moment, which Kreskos calls Atta, at which he created the world. Every present moment, by definition, has to have a past and a future. So if there was a time before the creation of time, that's of course a paradox, and therefore, um, Aristotle argues that Kosh Baruch cannot have created time. Um, a few weeks ago, I was trying to make an argument to a bunch of Bachram from Chavon Yeshiva. They were having a little bit of difficulty with that argument. I was a little bit surprised and taken aback that they, the Chavon Yeshiva Bachram can't follow the simple argument of Aristotle. But in any case, what's interesting is, is that this is Aristotle's argument against Plato. In other words, if in fact time cannot be created, and time is dependent upon motion, then motion is eternal. If motion is eternal, then in fact, the world was never created. The world has just been moving all the time. Now, the fact is, which I want to say is, is that how is Aristotle understanding Plato? Because Plato says explicitly, right, that the Kodesh Baal created the world from a state of disorder. He created from the center of the soil. He says explicitly. I mean, how could Aristotle say that it's created? So, I mean, I don't know if we're supposed to be miyash of these things like miyash of a Gemara. It could possibly be that Plato's Hiuli is basically a notion. It doesn't have, in other words, it doesn't have time or motion. Hiuli means something which is sort of like undefinable. Toyo bavoyo. That the Ramban learns. It doesn't have, a, it doesn't have a, a property of time. Well, let's put it in the Greek way. If time is dependent upon motion, then it certainly doesn't have motion. Because it has motion, then already it's physically definable. So in other words, in other words, what I'm saying is the following thing is, is that Aristotle is not you know, claiming that Plato understood the world was created ex nihilo, but for Aristotle, time is not really an abstract concept. Time is really a a derivative of motion. Plato's um, state of disorder could not have had motion, because once it has motion, it has order. And because of that, it could not have had time. And therefore, says Aristotle, how could Plato claim that time was created? So in other words, I don't have to make the argument of Aristotle necessarily, he attributes to, to, to Plato, um, creation ex nihilo. The only thing is, is um, I want to just make one comment, if I near any in this thing, is that I claim that Aristotle speaks from two sides of his mouth. I'll tell you why. Because the argument that Aristotle makes is not an argument about time as a property of motion. In other words, Aristotle's treating time as a very abstract concept. In other words, Aristotle's argument is really a bluff because he's treating time as an abstract concept. And by treating time as a concept, he says, well, you see, time cannot have been created. And since time cannot have been created, 
and time comes from motion, there must have been eternal motion. Is eternal motion, then there can't be a state of disorder. That's Aristotle's argument. But really, Aristotle is wrong in this argument. Why? Because Aristotle's argument only works on a conceptual, abstract concept of time. The real time, as a property of motion, could very well have been created, just like motion could be created. But I don't see that Aristotle's argument really works so well. But in any case, um, Aristotle believes that in fact actually that motion is eternal, and for this reason he rejects the fact that the world could have been created from, um, from any set of disorder. Now since in Aristotle, motion represents the most primordial form of the physical world, because it's what motion that sets the world in, um, in um, you know, what, what, what actually sets everything into existence and into the, it, it determines the physics of the entire world. So because of that, since the motion is eternal, so the world cannot have been in a disordered state because it's motion, which actually, the motion of the spheres, which actually revise the basis of the physical um, qualities of the world. And uh, so because of that, you know, everything has remained the same. There isn't a notion of from disorder to order. That's, that's Aristotle's point. Now, I want to, um, the, the, the final point I want to make here is that really this book eight of Aristotle is really a proof of the existence of God. In fact, actually, the, it's clear, it's evident that the Rambam in his first in the first parak, the first chapter of the second volume of Baron of Uchem, derived his proof of God of the existence of God and of God's um, incorporeality from Aristotle. Now, um, actually, Aristotle makes a lot of arguments about this, but in fact, actually, if I can just go to the very end of Aristotle's arguments, and that's on um, page, um, <coughs> that's on page um, 446. It's the very, very um, last page here. It corresponds to the original Aristotelian pages of 267b. That's Daf. Um, Reish Sabach Zayin Amud Beis, and I just want to read the uh, the final paragraph here. Um, now that these points are settled, it is clear that the first unmovement cannot have any magnitude. For it has magnitude, there must be either a finite or an infinite magnitude. Now we have already proved in our course of physics that there cannot be an infinite magnitude, and we have now proved that it is impossible for a finite mode to have an infinite force, and also that it is impossible for a thing to be moved by a finite magnitude during an infinite time. But the first mover causes a motion that is eternal and causes it without, during an infinite time. It's clear, therefore, there's an indivisible as without parts and without magnitude. <coughs> Basically, what Aristotle is saying is what the Rambam says in the first parak of the second chedek of the Marin of Ochem. The Rambam's um, proof of the existence of God, right, um, is actually, um, right, um, and from page, um, beginning from page 258, the Schwartz edition, to 262, the Rambam actually adopts the Aristotelian proof of God based upon the same concept. In fact, where does, where does the eternity of the world come in in the Rambam's proof of God? By the way, the Rambam, the Rambam actually lists this. On page 256 of the Haddamah in the Schwartz edition, the Rambam says he lists um, axiom number 26, Gematri Yud Kevavke, um, to be Kadmas Oilam. Why Kadmas Oilam? Is because it's very clear. Because Plato says that um, that if God is of a right, you know, is is a fine, is bound in a finite magnitude, how could he? How can God have moved for an infinite amount of time? So it must be God cannot be of any finite magnitude. Now, in fact, actually, this is the this is um, this is the Rambam's proof, right? Um, on page 260, the Rambam says, in the second paragraph, right, um, I'm reading for the Schwartz edition, the Ainu, In other words, if there's a force, it has to be bounded. In other words, if the, if, 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 if the first mover is bounded, therefore its force has to be bounded. But says the Rambam, however, um, but it can't be eternal. But that's true. How can it be moving eternally? 
This is the same, this is word for word from Aristotle. Word for word from Aristotle. So, and this is one of, obviously one of the great paradoxes of the Mernavuchim. And the Rambam, in this chapter, the Rambam is coming to, you know, to, you know, to, 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 to argue, to deny, or to oppose the turning of the world. In fact, his, his proof of the, his proof of the, of the existence and of the incorporeality of God rests upon the same argument that Aristotle makes, right? And which is very, very much based upon the eternity of motion and eternity of the world. As the Rambam admits the fact. Okay, in any case, in any case, um, there is certainly no mention of this here in the Murray Nebuchadnezzar and Parakid Gimel. This is a paradox which we'll have to deal with. Um, and um, the Rambam, the, um, the Rambam though mentions something very interesting. He says, is that one would think, what? At 300, page 300. One would think that the argument to believe in, for Aristotle is Aristotle's theory is because it allows me to believe that God is incorporeal. But that's not what the Rambam is going to say. It says God, right? Um, it's impossible. In other words, it's impossible that a Kodesh Baruch Hu, um, should have a Rotsu which he doesn't have already. Which also wants to speak about that too, because the fact is that Rabbam has argued in many places in Chedagimel there can't be Meschadash Yediyah in God. There can't be something like the Rambam, God has a doubt of something at one time that before that, that's a Chisar in a Kodesh Baruch Hu. So that's something we're going to have to deal with too. Um, in any case, right, without even going into the real stevas in the Marnavuchim, it comes out, the very interesting thing is, the Platonic concept, the creation of the world, was adopted by the Rambam, both in the notion of the theory of forms we spoke about, and also in the fact that the, you know, the world is a, is a living creature, a living body. And the, um, the Aristotelian argument for the eternity of motion was adopted by the Rambam in his proof of existence and incorporeality of God. So the Rambam did make use of these two theories in other parts of the Megad of Even though the Tosh is Right, right. Now, I want to conclude a little bit with Perak Yud Gimel. The Rambam says there are certain views he doesn't discuss. Who does he discuss? He's not going to discuss the people, um, the apikosim, or people who don't believe in God. And that's what the Rambam says. Um, this is the, the true, this is a, a summary of the, of, of the views, and they're, you know, they're true. Says the Rambam, these are the opinions of those people who believe in God. No, but if you don't believe in God, he's not going to give you a pain. Like this is the next little slide. Those who don't acknowledge the existence of God, people think that things happen just by chance. No one, there's no designer. As Epicurus, as Alexander has recorded. There's no point in, um, in mentioning these things. Why not? Because you're not be quiet. No, says the Rambam. We've already won. Proven that the world was created. How do we prove that? Using the eternity of the world of Aristotle. Now, by the way, Mahmoudi says other proofs too. Let's speak about that. I'm aware well aware of the fact that Maimonides also makes a type of ontological argument. And I saw, actually, someone argue that since Maimonides makes another argument, so there's not necessarily a stata, a contradiction. I disagree with that, but I don't want to go through it right now, but let me tell you something. I mean, if you can make an argument without a stata, why would you make an argument without a stata? It makes absolutely no sense. Okay? 
The person who wrote that, I basically lost all my respect for him. He wrote a book on Maimonides. I've lost respect for him for other ways too, but that really was the Makkah of Patish. Now, so, so the Ram says, I'm not going to mention people who, um, who deny this is of God. Why? Because it's been proven. Says the Rambam, these people are not logical. How could you how could you discuss an opinion? It's the opposite of the thing that's been proven. Right? the Rambam, I'm not going to try to prove. Right? The, I'm not going to try to prove those who believe in the second opinion that was Platonic eternity because says the Ramah, according to our sheet there's no distinction between a person who believes like Plato and lives in Aristotle because the purpose of our Shari Matar Shalom was a Moshe Rabbeinu a Ramavino is that God created the world created how can the Ramah say like this? the Ramah is saying I'm not going to try to try to prove the opinion of Plato there's no difference between Plato and Aristotle. Being the Romans, they're certainly not going to try to prove Aristotle. Because who cares? They're both going to turn in the universe. And our sheet is the world created next to How can the Rambam say that? The Rambam says in Chalik Bey's Perechafeg that if a person wanted to believe in Plato's theory of turning the universe, that's fine. He could believe in Nisan. He could believe in the Mechil of Klai Yisrael. In other words, you haven't undermined the, 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 the foundations of the Torah. But says the Rambam, Aristotle undermines the foundations of the Torah. So how can you possibly say, how can you possibly say there's no distinction between Aristotle and Plato? It's an incredible distinction. On the contrary, right? If I, I mean, you know, in Kilo there's a concept that you prove something less because the person might become an apikoyos, whatever it is. Let's assume there's a concept like that. Today, that's not true anymore. Today, we don't go like that. But let's assume, in other words, why not prove that Plato is true just at Sumerah? So you won't believe in Aristotle. How could the Rambam equate the two opinions? Unless you want to say that the Rambam's want to say is, I'm not going to bother proving them. In other words, if you want to believe in Plato, fine. But I'm not going to buy proving it because there's no point in proving it that I would believe anyway. Not to mention that in fact the Rambam never proves B'yesh Mi'ayin. As we'll see, it's Hashem. The Rambam just proves the other ones haven't been proven. Which leads me to another question. What do you mean I'm not going to bother proving it? The other ones haven't been proven. Also, too, why does the Rambam say I'm not going to be bothered proving the second opinion? Because I'll do it between the second opinion and, 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 and Aristotle. So, so I mean, what, in other words, to look at it in a lundish way, the Rambam's Havamina was to prove Plato, and not Aristotle. Why did he choose to prove Plato? I mean, before I make my, I declare my yesoids that Plato's better than Aristotle. So you have to say, you could say, is that the Rambam has in the back of his mind that, you know, if I believe in Plato, that corresponds to the Torah. Let me prove Plato. At least no one will be, no one will be a kaifa. So the says, I could prove Plato, but what's the point in it? If you're already choosing what to believe in, you might as well believe in the, in the theory of Moshe Rabbeinu and Avraham Avinu, the world created next thing alone. It's a very difficult passage in the Ramah. Clearly, the Ramah is getting at something. What he's getting at is not going to be clear now. I'm yet to show speak about this. But clearly, the Ramah is getting at something. Um, the bullshitters, though, nonetheless ascertain that the world's eternal in, in contradiction to this. Okay, now, um, let me just say a few minutes of, of where we're holding, where we're, where we're going. <coughs> the is the last line, page 301, the last, last line in the Paracute Gimel. After we've established his opinions, basically it's going to make clarify the opinions of Aristotle and what was what led Aristotle to, to have his opinions. 
Now, first of all, um, the Rambam does not go very much into Platonic theory. It, it, the attack appears to be on, on, on Aristotle, which, you know, which could lead a person to the assumption or to the hypothesis that the Rambam was leaving things open, you know, that, you know, perhaps I believe in Plato, like the Rambam says in chapter 25, you know, there's no, there's no inherent contradiction to the Torah, at least to any of the fundamental principles of the Torah. Um, however, I think there's another important point here that he made, made, made too. Um, the Rambam mentions here the Rambam says, what does the Rambam say? The Rambam says, doesn't say, I'm going to prove creation ex nihilo. doesn't say I'm going to prove creation ex nihilo. He says, right, that basically I have to, right, what's entailed here is is that it's not an absurdity to speak about creation ex nihilo. In other words, the Ram doesn't declare I'm going to prove creation ex nihilo. The Ram is clearly saying, this is going to be clear in the next few prokem. I'm going to prove to you that, I'm going to try to prove to you at least, or put it this way, to believe in creation ex nihilo, then it's essential belief that it's not a paradox, a logical impossibility. And in fact, that's what the Rambam is going to do. What the Rambam is going to do next prokim is going to show that Aristotle has not thoroughly proven the world's eternal. And he's going to muster arguments that therefore creates things in the or remains a possibility. It's not, in other words, it's not a paradox. It's not a logical impossibility. In other words, really, the Rambam said to us that in fact, in other words, I just have to establish that Aristotle is not what you call bochach. In other words, it's logically, necess- you know, logically necessary, not natural necessity. And that it's possible that creation ex nihilo is a possibility. Permission to believe. Right. Which is interesting. No, which is interesting. No, is that permission late? He tries to prove it. He claims he's proving it. It's exactly that. Showing it's not illogical. What? He claims to show it's not illogical. Why is it not illogical? I don't go into uh, maybe not illogical. I think I think I, my opinion is he seems to prove that that's very very mystical. Um, it's very very. My, I think permission to believe. That's what that's the translation. But I think he tries to actually say that not only is it, not only is it not illogical, 